Welcome to Our Portland with Sarah Iannarone, made possible by contributors to Friends of Sarah for Portland. Portlanders have everything we need to make radical progress today on emergencies like climate chaos, housing affordability, and staggering inequality. Each episode, we'll hear how Sarah plans to be the mayor to lead the city of Portland to a more equitable and sustainable future. And now, here's Sarah. Welcome back to the Hour of Portland podcast. It's been a while. Um, we've been trying to stay in touch with you via our live streams, via our social media, via our emails if, we're, if you're on our mailing list, and via advertisements in local news outlets because they're struggling at this time. And so if there's any information that you want to share, I suggest taking out an ad in your local newspaper or media outlet, uh, radio station, whatever, because they could really use our support. My name is Sarah Iannarone. My pronouns are she, her, and I am running to be the next mayor of Portland. Election day. Woo-hoo! Is five weeks away from the day that this podcast drops. That means for those of us who vote by mail here in Oregon, our ballots are going to be arriving in our mailboxes in two to three weeks. This is go time. I need you to be engaged in politics. I know it feels hard. I know that there's a lot going on to distract you. I know some of you are doing all that you can just to maintain and get your basic needs met day to day. But we're going to talk a little bit about this episode, why this is a more critical time than ever for us to think about local politics, who our leadership is, what their vision, their values and credentials are and how we can come together as a community using everything that we already have to make transformative policy that's going to help us recover from this pandemic, but also carve out that better future that we've been talking about through things like our Green New Deal for our Portland and other uh, issues like that. But before we get started, I wouldn't want to forget it's been a while since we got to talk about our favorite thing, the tweet of the week. Many of you are sewing masks. I know that for me and my daughter, it was a bright spot in an otherwise gloomy situation in which we're all having to put on masks to make sure that we're protecting others because we could be potentially potentially carrying the COVID-19 virus. So, So many Portlanders have been engaged in mask making. I got to teach my daughter how to sew. It was phenomenal. She has been wanting to learn for a while and we couldn't get our schedules to align. And many of you know I'm pretty crafty. So it was pretty fun for me to be able to share a skill that I learned from my mother with my daughter and pass that down in such a pro-social thing as using up our scrap fabric from the fabric bin to make masks for our friends and family. I'm hoping I can make some uh, for the people in my community to share if I can get my butt into that chair and get some serious sewing time in. But for those of you who recollect, (laughs) once upon a time, former police chief Danielle Outlaw, who was not really particularly friendly Um, to the everyday anti-fascists with whom I 
sometimes keep company, had called for a ban on masks, right? Because we have these Antifa thugs in the street who were wreaking havoc ostensibly. And so we needed to demask them to keep Portland safe was the argument. Very little awareness, I think, about how anti-fascism works, um, why people might want to wear masks, and even um, that the real problem are the white supremacists who can proudly go about our city. Their name is even Proud Boys, some of them, and Patriot Prayer, who don't feel the need to wear masks at all, uh, because oftentimes they find themselves in more sympathetic position when it comes to local law enforcement than people who are pushing back against white nationalism and bigotry and hatred in our streets. So as you can imagine, many of us were like, hell no, um, we value our privacy. There are other reasons why people might want to wear masks, including the flashbang grenades and smoke bombs that sometimes go off. So um, it was pretty, <laughs> I guess, I'll just say it, ironic when the Portland police chief now, it's no longer outlaw, but it's the same position if a different person, directed officers to wear masks when making arrests. And so this week's Tweet of the Week goes to um, Aaron Mesh, a news editor over at Willamette Week. He's at Aaron with an A, Mesh. And he linked to a Willamette Week article about the police chief directing officers to wear masks. And it said, it's like raid on your wedding day. And I know that everyone who saw that tweet probably sang that lyric. And I called it basically the tweet of the year. Because the irony that we're all walking around masked up with our eyes protected the way um, many people who've been protesting against uh, fascism have been dressed for a very long time has created a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? And so the irony, yes, it is Aaron Mesh ironic. Thank you for that tweet. It's not one that we'll soon forget. So <laughs> digs at the Portland Police Bureau aside, it is go time. And I need your help. It's not many people running for political office locally or otherwise, who are willing to say that I espouse everyday anti-fascism as a tactic to keep white nationalists, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, bigots out of Portland. You know that they have set their sights on us as a progressive stronghold, and they are trying to undermine our community strength, our commitment to sanctuary city, our commitment to anti-racism, and our commitment to progressivism. But I am refusing to let that be taken from us. And in fact, I want us to strengthen our community responses. I'm so excited to see groups like Pop Mob organizing to create masks, to create hand sanitizer, and distribute mutual aid in our streets, whether those are the street medics who are out there working, people who are providing food for folks experiencing homelessness, um, all of the things that communities are doing to keep each other safe in the streets is exactly what we need more of. And we need government not making that harder for people to do. We need government making that easier for Portlanders to come together and support each other and to craft good policy that's going to keep us healthy and strong 
for the future, despite what's going on in the world around us economically, politically, with regard to climate change, and now we see public health issues. So here's what I need from you. If you're listening to this podcast, my guess is this isn't your first time on something having to do with the Sarah 2020 campaign. If it is, welcome. We're happy to have you. And I hope you'll dig in because time is running out between now and the May primary, which is really where local races are won and lost because they're nonpartisan elections. So what we decide this May can make or break us. We, if we don't get, um, you know, through the primary, this is all over with. So we need to double down right now. And here's what you can do to help us. One, it's phone banking season. We had planned to knock on almost 30,000 doors using volunteer participants who have signed up in the last nine months to be a part of this campaign. We cannot go door to door anymore because of the shelter in place ordinances. So what we need you to do is go to sarah2020.com slash events and sign up for a phone banking session. It's easy. You get trained one time. After you're trained, you have a link and you can phone bank at your leisure. That could be every time you take a break from 50 minutes of work, you could make two calls. And at the end of the week, you would have made a hundred calls for the campaign. You can do it on your time from the comfort of your home. It's not hard. I enjoy talking to people 90% of the time. It goes to the answering machine anyway. It's a really great way to reach voters and get the important information that we need about tracking down people's ballots to make sure they get them turned in. And if you're really opposed to talking to strangers, we have an alternative. It's our distributed organizing program. And through that, what you do is you use the contacts in your phone. You install an app called Reach. It was developed by um, AOC's campaign to deal with uh, the challenges of canvassing to multifamily housing, but it's helping us now during the shelter in place policy. And so what you can do is check in with your contacts about how they're planning to vote in May. You can host a virtual house party and that's at sarah2020.com slash host. You can host a lawn sign in your yard. It may seem insignificant, but that, you know, name recognition matters. And so getting that name, vote Sarah 2020 in May is going to help us get more people, the neighbors who go back and forth on your block as they're walking around to see my name, click that circle on their ballot, and then hopefully learn more about us on the web. So those are some things that you can do. Most importantly, the public matching program ends at the end of this month. So if you were planning on contributing that first $50 and you haven't, do not wait. If you wait until after... April ends to donate, you'll give us $50 and it will just be $50. If you give us $50 before the end of the month, that $50 becomes $350. If two adults in your household give that to us, that becomes $700. And you're eligible to get that $50 right back through the Oregon tax credit on next year's taxes. So don't hesitate. If you can give any money right now, please do so. There's no time like the present. Uh, we have a, our primary opponent, the incumbent mayor, Ted Wheeler, can raise as much in a single check as it takes us a whole month to raise um, using small donor contributions. Right now we're running an average around $30. It can take us a whole month to raise what he can get in a single fancy lunch downtown. So please do not sit this one out. It is very important and we need to get you involved. Thank you so much for staying tuned in. I'm really excited to have you here. 
This is one of the policy podcasts that we release every time we release a new policy. This is a policy that we weren't planning on releasing, to be quite honest. It's a testament to the power and capacity of my team insofar as we were poised at the beginning of April to release what was going to be called our equity and inclusion for economic prosperity plan. We had done a lot of research over the months talking with people in economic development, in racial justice and equality, in community development to explore what an economic policy for Portland that would align with our goals, our values, and our vision would look like. But as many of you know, uh, starting in March, our economy essentially imploded and all predictions about our future became somewhat moot. It's really hard to know what's going to be happening from here. There are predictions that we're headed into a global recession that could become a depression. Um, we're definitely going to fall on hard times. There are going to be budget cuts. We're spending a lot of money that we hadn't budgeted in disaster response. A lot of that money um, is going to affect how we're able to make capital investments in the future. Meanwhile, things like the gas tax um, that we use to generate uh, money for our street investments, uh, I mean, our transportation bureau just on parking and gas tax revenue alone is taking a hit that's in the millions of dollars every month already. And this is going to be happening across cities, across governments. And so we just did not think that it was an appropriate time to release an economic development plan that was predicated in the status quo because the status quo is shop. Is that a bad thing? I don't know that it is. A lot of what we were working on here through the Sarah 2020 campaign was predicated on the fact that normal wasn't working for so many Portlanders. And so what we decided to do was pause. The first thing that we did was release an emergency plan for community action to deal with the outbreak. A few of our bullet points have been adopted by local government. We had called for a moratorium on sweeps of the homeless. Um, they have adopted that. We had called for uh, an eviction moratorium. Uh, they implemented that. Some of the other things that we've called for haven't been put in place. But, you know, I think our leaders are trying and I want to support them. And regardless of what happens, uh, the incumbent, Mayor Ted Wheeler, is going to be mayor all the way through the end of 2020. So we need to be able to organize to push policy solutions that we would like to see. Um, even if I am elected with a majority in May, I won't be able to take office until January. Or if I have to go to a general election, that election won't happen until November 2020. So there's a long time between now and then in which we have to support the incumbent, come together and make sure that our voices are heard in crafting better policy. But the question that we have before us is who do we want to be mayor on January 1st, 2021? I thought about this carefully. I thought about why did this campaign take off to begin with? Why did we think it was important to challenge the incumbent? What were we trying to accomplish? And when I looked through the policies that we had released already, they were more relevant now than perhaps than when we started. 
So things like municipal broadband, which seemed like a bit of an outside thought when this conversation began. But I had said, you know, why are we spending between $500 million and a billion dollars to put a lane on a freeway uh, when we could actually be making investments that would keep everyone connected through high-speed internet to their house. And now we're looking at our PPS students, we're looking at our people working from home, people like me running for office whose internet was totally choppy, um, and saying, wow, it seems to me like uh, municipal broadband would be a really great infrastructure investment. So it's things like that where we've had to look through and say, what were we thinking about all along to make Portland more resilient? And how can we call through those to really highlight some of those and make sure that anything that we forgot, omitted, didn't get to yet can be incorporated in that? And so we spent the last couple of weeks since the outbreak hit and since we've been able to regroup and reorient our, our campaign from a face-to-face, in-person relationship-based campaign to an all-digital, multimedia, virtual uh, relationship campaign. And what we came up with was what we're calling the Recovery and Resiliency Plan for a Better Portland Through and Beyond the COVID Crisis. Now, those of you who listen to my other policy podcasts know that I go through these plans um, not quite point by point, but certainly section by section to save you the time of reading them. But for those of you who prefer to read this first, I suggest you pause here and you can go to sarah2020.com slash recovery, sarah2020.com slash resiliency. And you can find this plan and you can read it before I talk through it. But for those of you who maybe are too busy or for whom rating things um, on an electronic interface isn't desirable or accessible, I'm going to talk you through it. So resiliency is one of those concepts that came into fashion a little bit after sustainability. And what it said was, you know, sustainability was a model that was really revolving around the notion that we needed to get our economies and our energy consumption in line with what our planet could sustain. And there was a concept that they called the triple bottom line in which, you know, it was about people, planet, and the economy. And for whatever reason, um, that became quite trendy for a little bit. Portland became a sustainability leader, if you will. A lot of things like green cities and uh, sustainable cities became popular. And it's one of those words that's a policy buzzword where it gets a little trendy and then we would have things like greenwashing come, right? And so what was it really, what was really happening? And in some ways, resiliency was one of those policy trends that followed uh, sustainability. And not that these are bad things any more than Crocs, right, or Uggs are bad. Sometimes things that are trendy can be just fine, but it doesn't make them any less trendy. The importance is the authenticity, right, of what are you engaging with or what are you um doing that's real on the ground? Or are you just taking a trend, um, watering it down and then selling it as a, almost a consumer good, right? So for a while in the post-sustainability era, if you will, resiliency was a really hot topic, but it's never really been far from my mind in terms of the thinking that's been going on behind this campaign. 
um, communities that are focused on resiliency as opposed to sustainability, in my understanding, are going to be better prepared to deal with climate change, climate chaos, because really, um, and I'm going to quote you here from a community resiliency plan from Wellington, New Zealand, who's actually worked quite a bit with Portland in developing this, is that resilience is about making people, communities, and systems better prepared to withstand catastrophic events, both natural and man-made, and able to bounce back more quickly and emerge stronger from shocks and stresses. So if you think about sustainability being about maintaining whole systems, right? The steady state capacity of this planet to sustain our species on it. Um, resiliency is really about communities in many ways. And when something comes at us, whether that's a flood or a tornado or a virus, are we able to weather the shock? Are we other, are we able to take that hit and bounce back? And with what speed will we bounce back? And when we are hit, who is affected first and worst? And what does it mean for us to think about that in advance and not just react, but be proactive about it? And so the Rockefeller Foundation was actually quite a leader in this. They had their 100 uh, Resilient Cities program. They wanted uh, to help cities around the world uh, be more resilient. And many of the programming, much of the programming that I did out of Portland State University with First, First Stop Portland was around uh, urban resilience. I remember hosting a delegation from Biera, Mozambique, uh, where they were their low-lying port city, and they uh, didn't come here to study green infrastructure. They didn't come to study bioswales. They came to study community engagement and civic engagement because, um, as Judith Roden, who was president of the Rockefeller Foundation then and was really spearheading the Resilient Cities movement, she said, No matter how aware and ready we may be, things still go wrong and disruptions often confound all of our plans and preparations. Social cohesion is our first responder. And that has always stuck with me from the first time I heard it because when we have strong communities, we are better prepared for everything. And nothing is laying that more bare than this COVID crisis that we're in right now. So I really wanted to just put you in this mindset as I go through this policy that that's where we're coming from. It's about not just getting through this crisis, but how do we take the lessons that we're learning in this moment and use them to be a better Portland on the other side of this crisis? Now, back when we launched this campaign in 2019, is this where we thought we'd be at election day? No way. But it is what it is, and we are where we are. And the pandemic has disrupted our lives at a scale that few people in our lifetime have ever witnessed. And so even as we are collectively grieving the loss of the normal that we used to know, even as we are grieving the loss of friends, family, um, and loved ones, even as we're grieving the loss of our jobs, of security, of at least a semblance of normalcy, There is an opportunity in here, and I want you to stay with me through this in terms of the amount of optimism that we're going to have to maintain to see us through. I'll tell you a little story, and that's 
goes back to Y2K. I don't know how many of you listening uh, were too young to remember this, uh, but for those of us who are old enough, Y2K was New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1999. Many Americans were stopping up on food, water, and guns, thinking that a computer bug was going to collapse systems. I was paying some attention to this, but at the same time, I was nine months pregnant and about ready to give birth. And all I could think about was getting this baby into the world and what was I going to do? It was my first pregnancy. Um, I was pretty young at the time and I was scared. So yes, Y2K was bearing down on us, but at the same time, I was just trying to get um, through my pregnancy and make sure that I delivered a healthy baby. And so as the fireworks started going off, when New Year's Eve erupted on the other side of the Pacific, I was in a delivery room at Legacy Emanuel giving birth. And it wasn't easy. <laughs> Natural childbirth, as anyone can tell you, is a, is a grind. But I did it. And at the same time, the chaos that many people had feared from a computer glitch never came to be. In part, uh, we learned that our government actually took warning seriously and coordinated internationally and made the proper investments to protect us, unlike our government now. But that's another story. Uh, in that moment, though, what I learned was uncertainty is the normal. Right. It was becoming increasingly clear, even to me 20 years ago, that things like the Internet, right, um, accelerating environmental degradation, uh, global warming, as we used to talk about it, were going to make life increasingly uncertain. And also the fact that uh, the rise of uh, uh, globalized corporate advanced capitalism was making communities increasingly economically vulnerable right? And it it didn't seem to me in that moment when I was giving birth in the middle of chaos that things were going to be getting any easier. I figured they were going to be getting harder all the time from here on out. And how was I, uh, this young woman far from family, uh, here, n not knowing any other parents? I had been working in food service and many of my peers were not starting families at the time. How was I going to do this? What would I do to sustain a family and get us through this crisis? But I had no choice. I just had to forge ahead boldly into the unknown. And what I did was build a community around me so that I could occupy uncertainty as a position of opportunity and growth rather than always coming at it from a position of fear. Because if uncertainty is a given. Right. But as the, 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 the dynamic situations are increasingly intensified, then we have to learn to occupy that. Um, because if we are operating constantly from a position of fear, it undermines our ability to think clearly, to think creatively, to be expansive. And so I share this anecdote with you, not just to share my birth story, which is something I try not to forget. And I try to recall, how, you know, the strength that I derive from that. But also to let you know that as we head into this situation as your mayor, I possess the temperament, the knowledge, the community building skills, and the real life experience to lead our city in chaotic, volatile, complex, and ambiguous times. Those of us who've lived complex lives, who've lived what are even called messy lives, in some ways have better skills now in terms of being able to adapt, being able to be nimble and flexible because things haven't always gone our way anyway. And so the ability to shift course 
as something that is a strength right now. And the policies and plans that my campaign team and I proposed were built in for the most vulnerable and in some ways the most flexible and adaptable people in our society anyway. The Green New Deal for our Portland thinks about how we can create green collar jobs based on the infrastructure investments we need to make. The Rethinking Public Safety Plan is driven by uh, understanding that a militarized police force isn't what we're going to need to keep people safe in the 21st century. The Housing for All Plan looks at our resources and said, we have a lot. If we think differently, maybe we can try to keep everyone at least under a roof every single night who wants to be there and making sure that they're dry and warm with access to basic health needs um, and human dignity. And even the Good Government Plan, which would say, let's make sure that we have the capacity for people to attend city council meetings without having to come downtown in the middle of the day. Well, if we had that, we would be in a lot better shape as we're trying to deal with some of the things that we're dealing with now. So uncertainty and instability are the new normal. And progressive cities like Portland can play an important role modeling how to stabilize communities in the midst of global and economic and political upheaval, right? So everything we do here in Portland is important just for beyond keeping our own community safe to making sure that we are modeling best practices for cities around the world who look to us because we're seen as a green leader, because we're seen as a sustainability leader, because we're seen as a community leader. And I just want you to know that at this critical time in Portland's history, we must have the courage to transform fear into action and come together, not just to navigate the uncertainty of the moment that we're in, and survive this chaos, but to carve out a better future and seize the opportunity to transform systems that haven't been working for so many of us. The normal that we're leaving behind wasn't working for most Portlanders anyway. We've seen increasing homelessness, rising housing costs, stagnant wages, dirty air and water pollution, traffic congestion, systemic racism, rising emissions, and big money in politics that mean we can't get anywhere that we need to go when we want to go there. Even our neighborhoods have been divided as we're trying to create housing to accommodate growth. Some neighborhoods are saying, yes, let new people come here. And others were like, no, not in my neighborhood. You're not coming so I want us to take this moment as we get through this together to craft a better future to ensure that Portland is a city that truly works for all Portlanders. I'm not claiming I have all the answers, not even close. But what we need, I believe, from our leaders right now is people with courage who admit when they don't know what's going on and are willing to tap into the collective knowledge of the community. It's something I really don't like about our incumbent is that this top-down decision-making model where it's just not grounded. The policies coming out of the mayor's office in Portland right now are not grounded in the collective intelligence of the people. They're not grounded in the community reality of what we're doing together here. And if we had a mayor who understood the capacity of communities and believed in communities, imagine the things that we could accomplish instead of fighting against City Hall if City Hall was fighting with us. Um, we need leaders who are nimble and flexible and willing to create you know, new partnerships that haven't been created before. Um, leaders who have a good 
street smarts and who have robust networks that aren't just the good old boy networks where people, you know, are affluent and have insider access and know the secret handshakes to everything. And while those are important, we also need people who are connected to our leaders on the fringes, our leaders on the margins, our leaders deep in the communities who have different sets of knowledge and different sets of expertise. And I actually think it's important that we have a visionary leader now more than ever. I want to compliment the incumbent because he has done a nice job of crisis management, but that's only going to go so far. Being a good bureaucrat and being a good manager might stabilize, but it's not going to transform. And so we need leaders who have a crystal clear vision of the big picture of what we're trying to accomplish so that even as new information and new realities come flying at us, we can quickly adapt and succeed and continue to work on meeting our goals. Most importantly, and this is something that I come at you all the time with, is tactical optimism. We need people to be shaping our future who can look at the world as it is and not despair, but who can maintain hope and instill hope in other people that a better future is possible. That optimism to see us through is going to be so critical. And so I've said it from day one on this campaign, and I'm going to say it now. My faith in the city is strong. I love Portland, I believe in us, and I believe in you. And I think that we have everything we need to solve our most pressing problems today. But we need leaders who believe that empowering our people and organizing our communities is the answer. So this policy proposal that I'm sharing with you is grounded in that understanding. And I hope that we can, through rebuilding our community, be much more resilient um, on the other side of it. I'm not going to go through too much of what I called for in the community action plan for the pandemic when it hit, but it's sarah2020.com slash COVID. And that was the community action plan to mitigate the outbreak. And by the time we get to um, election day, the outbreak will probably be plateaued. And a lot of that will be coming the past. And we're going to need to think about how do we move beyond the pandemic to keep our communities stabilized? I'm very especially worried about uh, the rent moratorium and what happens on the other side of this when the rent comes due. Uh, there's a couple things that I changed in here with regard to that. I think we need to think about vulnerable persons who need um, quarantine or self-care, have access to all the empty hotel rooms. They've got to be going for really cheap right now. <laughs> um, we should be able to uh, be able to uh, accommodate them. And another one that's coming up that I want to put on your radar is hunger. It wasn't in my initial plan. I think that belies my privilege and my food security, but also the fact that one of the biggest things that we're seeing in cities around the world, and I hope that Portland can get out in front of leading on, is addressing hunger with urgency, coordination, and creativity. Uh, thousands of Portlanders are going hungry. Agencies are struggling to feed them. Broken supply chains and strained funding sources are hurting them now more than ever. And so this is a critical time where we could be investing in local food ser services, making sure that the relationships between local business and organizations to divert surplus inventory are strong, collaborating with non-local partners to minimize waste and make sure that food production, transportation, distribution systems are efficient. Um, and we need to even encourage people who are food secure, like me, to minimize their impacts on the system by uh, minimizing waste 
and growing fresh foods um, on land wherever we can. And that includes making space available for residents of multifamily dwellings, container gardens on surface parking lots, community gardens in our parks. We need to get creative to grow food in this city. It's something that uh, may not happen before the end of the summer. Obviously, you need a season to grow that food. Uh, but I put my bean plants and my beans that I brought back from Denmark, I put them in the ground this weekend. I'm going to cultivate them. I only was able to get nine of the 12 to sprout. But even things like growing high-protein food sources like beans so that we can eat uh, more sustainably and keep our carbon footprint low is going to be really important. Another thing that's in there, I'll encourage you to take a look at it. I'm not going to go through it point by point, but back in December of 2016, this is one of those I told you so moments. Um, back in December of 2016, even before Mayor Ted Wheeler took office, he was just mayor-elect then, I uh, offered to his staff to write a white paper on how he could come up with an Office of Community Resilience. Uh, it would have made us eligible for a $100,000 grant. We could have hired a, a chief resiliency officer with that money uh, from the Rockefeller Foundation and actually had in place now, <laughs> when we actually had a crisis, um, an Office of Community Resilience that would have already had a lot of the things that we're having to carve out now um, in place. This I was really thinking about the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake uh, that was maybe going to happen and that could really still happen any day now. Uh, but I think that what we need to do is uh, coordinate better city bureaus and civic functions under an Office of Community Resilience. And so I'll encourage you to look at that um, part of the policy. These will be in little sections so that you can read them. Ultimately, the most important thing is that if we think about the city's challenges as opportunities uh, through a framework of community-driven disaster preparedness and emergency management, it's going to help us meet a lot of our other goals. It's also going to tap into our creativity. We can base it in equity. We can use good data to make our decisions, and we can assess areas of greatest vulnerability, make critical infrastructure investments. Um, make sure that as we're preparing for disaster, we're thinking about livability and uh, inequity and increasing the capacity of our communities. And a chief resiliency officer would be helpful. It would be nice if our bureaus were communicating better. I found a lot of the response to this to be ad hoc and fractured as oftentimes is the case um, in our commission form of government when the weak mayor system and a weak mayor actually happen in tandem. We've actually had strong mayors in the weak mayor system who I think did pretty well because they were strong leaders, but our leader right now just isn't very strong. So uh, some of this is new. Rebuilding our economy and workforce isn't something that we've had to talk about because Portland had a robust economy. We were actually talking about prior to the COVID crisis what it meant for us to um, make sure that the benefits of prosperity were shared more equitably around the city. And so what we're looking at now is, um, boy, we have to do this uh, bigger, harder, faster, better. And even though Portland's had a long history of striving toward economic resiliency, the, the old trajectory, we don't know what's happening with that. So we have some good things on paper. Our comprehensive plan update that we adopted in 2016 commits us to a low carbon economy that fosters employment growth, competitiveness, and shared prosperity. Yet 
restarting our economy is going to be pretty challenging. And so a return to economic quote unquote normalcy isn't really possible or desirable. I think it's an opportunity for us to transcend the hypocrisy that defined why so many words that we use like equity and sustainability just don't really seem to pencil uh, on paper and how we can transition away from our growth at all costs model and transition off our dependency on fossil fuels and really uh, carve out the economic policies that I propose in my Green New Deal for our Portland. And if you go to the sarah2020.com website, um, slash podcasts. You can look through all of these policies have podcasts associated with them. So I encourage you to go back and look, listen to those if you haven't. But right now, um, we're looking at record low interest rates. The Fed is taking the unprecedented step of securing uh, municipal bond investments. And it may be one of the better times for us to make large municipal investments in a more sustainable future. We can put people to good work, to work with good union jobs. Um, we can make investments in public infrastructure to reduce carbon emissions and shore up our seismic um, infrastructure our, and reduce vulnerability. We can improve accessibility, equity, and resilience and make sure that the small business sector uh, is shored up through some of these investments, making small business grants and loans available, assisting entrepreneurs in starting new businesses, etc., and making sure that that's done equitably and efficiently. Um, we also need to develop new measures. Like what you measure is what you will get. And I say this time and again, but what economic indicators are going to drive policies that spur growth, um, focused on human well-being, focused on environmental sustainability for real? Because as Portland has prospered, you know, what has gone up our emissions as Portland has prospered. You know, what has gone up inequality as Portland has prospered. You know, what has gone up homelessness. This is not prosperity. So we need new measures that help us assess the strength of our social safety net. And it doesn't mean small government. It means good government. It means government spending money on things that improve our collective existence and make us safer and more resilient. I'm so tired, excuse me for my French, but I'm so tired of austerity bullshit that undermines government's ability to protect the health and well-being of people. We need economic policy that's driven by our principles and our values and not the interests of transnational corporations and lobbyists who really think that government is in the way of their big profits. I'm done with it. It hasn't served us. It exploits us. It scrapes value off our communities. It basically robs us. And so we as Portlanders need to fight for our autonomy in the global marketplace and our autonomy as residents of this place to shape the future that works for us. I think it's going to be great to have a small business mayor. I don't know that I would need to create a whole new hundred person task force to come up with a small business plan at this point, because we would already have a small business expert in my office who had those networks and those plans in place. Uh, if I were mayor right now, we would probably already have that. You know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So as soon as I get in office, we're going to have a small business liaison who's the director of small business and entrepreneurship there who can look at our ecosystem. There's so many things going on in the city. And if I had to start a small business today, I don't even know what I would Google to get started. If I Googled sm start small business Portland, I don't even know who I would talk to. 
So we need to better align our strategic partnerships investments, make sure that the liaisons between local government and the advocacy groups are healthy and clear. We need to make sure that we're streamlining the SBA support that is going to be coming through and making sure that we're using good data collection systems so that underrepresented entrepreneurs and employers are able to scale up their share of prosperity. I think that that's going to take a storefront. Um, it was recommended to me that this maybe should even be somewhere not too far from the Lloyd Center, right? Which is kind of smack dab when it comes to the geography of Portland in the center, not the downtown, but like the neighborhood business districts of what would it mean for you to be able to walk in somewhere and get small business support uh, so that you could understand how to get a business off the ground. A lot of businesses are going out of business and those people are going to need to start new businesses potentially. And so a one-stop shop to help small businesses navigate and recover from the COVID crisis by providing basic technological assistance and outreach, I think that would be great. We can think about using the tax revenue from the marijuana industry to go back into communities that have been decimated by uh, the criminalization of that. We can support things like a freelancer's bill of rights. We've seen how organized labor has been able to advocate for their workers. But what would it mean for so many of the workers who are not protected, but functioning in the gig economy, creative services, arts and culture, media and entertainment to be able to have access to, say, health insurance since... um, You know, so much of what people have in our city is employment-based. I think it's important for us to think about how we can recognize uh, material gains for Portland's workers in the gig economy who don't have access to organized labor unions and their collective bargaining power. I'm not going to go too, too deep into that. I hope you'll go to the website and read it. There's a lot on there. There's some things with regard to the climate test, um, alternative measures to... Uh, assess progress, restorative justice and jobs creation, making sure we're shoring up the Portland Clean Energy Fund, transitioning frontline workers, especially those working in the fossil fuel and fossil fuel related industries to those green jobs first. Um, Fairless transit for Portlanders is going to be critical. One thing I do want to point out is that we do need to talk about more than equity in terms of how we're going to address um shared prosperity in the city. We need to actually make progress. And how you make progress is by picking something that stands as a proxy, right, for accomplishment in a marathon. We've set that at 26.2 miles. If you hit that 26.2 miles, well, you run a marathon. If you run 26 miles, you haven't. Does it mean you're a loser if you run 26 miles? No, but it's that 26.2 That is the standard. And so when you set standards, it gives you something to aim toward. And one of the things that we need to do to unravel the legacy of slavery and centuries of structural racism that have concentrated discrimination of lack and lack of opportunity in African-American communities, we need to reduce the black white wealth gap. And the way that we're going to measure progress on this is not at some abstract point down the road, but in the near term through a commitment to reducing income inequality by 30% by 2030 for black Portlanders by the time they turn 30 years old. We're going to call this our 30-30-30 racial equity plan. And hopefully we'll be able to work on that um, once we're in office. But I think having a clear measure in terms of what do we mean when we talk about equity will be helpful for us so it's not just functioning in the abstract so much. 
another part of what we need to do is focus on public works and infrastructure investments. And a lot of you know I have been focused on this for so long already through my Green New Deal for our Portland. But I will reiterate, a publicly owned municipal bank would be so good right now. Municipal broadband, so good. I'm making sure that we're focused on equity and public works investments by building capacity for marginalized community members and minority-owned businesses, making sure that all the retrofits and green building and weatherization and recycling and habitat restoration and regenerative food systems and all of the associated industries are focused on economic prosperity for people who've been left out of the equation for far too long. Uh, we can think about sustainable urban development as part of our economic development strategy. When we're building compact, walkable neighborhoods, who's building them? When we're talking about thrive zones in areas of our city, how are we getting those implemented? When we rethink our city streets, how are we making infrastructure investments that are low cost, but that also take uh, good skilled workers to be able to put them down? Most people don't know it takes twice as many laborers to put in a mile of active transportation infrastructure as it does a mile of uh, highway asphalt. So let's think about how we can even make critical investments to uh, increase prosperity across our city. Thinking about retrofitting urban golf courses and community energy planning and green building and a food action plan um, that will help us make sure that people are not, you know, food insecure in the future. And I also think that we should bring back the Portland Food Policy Council to make sure that this happens. It's something that we've been sleeping on now. And it just goes to show that when you let down your guard on things that are essential, um, it comes back to bite you later on. Obviously, obviously, much of what we proposed in our Rethinking Public Safety Plan still holds, but more now than ever, I think it's clear that protecting the well-being of our city's most marginalized means that we are using our public safety dollars the most wisely. Uh, the general fund discretionary budget comprises the amount of money that we have at our discretion of what we can spend as Portlanders. It's not um, earmarked based on its source, et cetera. And so when you think about our general fund, 60% of that is for public safety. And Wheeler right now is proposing a 2% cut to the public safety budget. I don't really think it's a good idea. What I think we need to do is spend the existing public safety budget more wisely. And we need to spend it to ensure that Portlanders are staying safe. You know, I've talked about things like Vision Zero, but those community safety hubs, imagine if we had those now, uh, the community safety hubs across neighborhoods that would have rest stops and hygiene and health facilities and critical services, even like a food pantry. Right now, we're having to work through a very uh, centralized model. I think a decentralized community safety hubs and community safety investments are going to be the way to go. We need more Portland street response as opposed to militarized policing. We need more public restrooms and community cleanups. And even do we have to ask ourselves whether or not maintaining the CDC recommendation that a moratorium on sweeps is important? Because if it's healthy in a crisis, then it's probably the healthy thing to do, not in a crisis too. Most importantly, we need leadership that shows up in a time of conflict and crisis alongside the people. I think it's pretty evident that things, although they're going okay, could be going a lot better if we had a community leader 
in City Hall as opposed to a business leader in City Hall. And I have unwaveringly demonstrated my willingness to stand in solidarity alongside Portlanders and the work that they're doing for social justice and equality. And I think that having someone who can promote civil unity by encouraging a healthier civil society um, and mutual aid efforts is going to go a long way toward increasing public safety in the city. So we need to have a local government that doesn't equate um, public safety with heavy-handed policing, but that really understands that, again, that Judith Roden concept of, concept of a resilient communities and social cohesion being our first responder is the way to go. Housing. Even prior to the COVID pandemic, our housing status quo was unsustainable. It's more apparent now than ever that the housing solutions I've proposed aren't radical. They are essential. And our answers to this crisis shouldn't be driven by corporate lobbyists from the real estate and big business sector, uh, but through a collaborative community-based approach to housing all Portlanders. I thought that was pretty rich that uh, the incumbent took a $10,000 check from PMAR, which lobbies against renter protections, and uh, his campaign reported it the day before rent was due on April 1st. Uh, we went pretty hard on him about that, and for good reason. When I asked him about it in my Willamette Week uh, endorsement interview, he said, I that $10,000 doesn't get them anything, but I don't know. I can't remember the last time I gave someone $10,000 for no good reason. So I guess we'll have to see how that pays off for Portland renters, whether or not we get rent forgiveness or whether or not we're going to have to pay back all that rent at the end of those three months moratorium. I have proposed a pretty comprehensive plan even prior to COVID. Uh, it was a five-year strategic plan for ending Portland's housing state of emergency, and it was led by a progressive task force for housing all Portlanders. They were going to work very hard for a single year to come up with some community-led strategic planning proposals to align government partnerships to execute them, and then to come up with a progressive revenue evaluation to make sure that we had the necessary money on hand. Um, strengthening renter protections more important now than ever. Renters' rights are consumer protections, and they're our last line of defense against homelessness. We need to double down on that. We must make sure that we have um, the fully enacted Tenants' Bills of Rights, which has been led by things like uh, Portland Tenants United and Community Alliance of Tenants, to make sure that we have a rental registry platform, that tenants are supported in their right to organize, that we're preventing evictions whenever possible. I don't think people realize how many evictions go on in public and publicly subsidized housing, even home forward, how many people get evicted from home forward. It's really bananas how many people are getting evicted in our city that we have a lot more control than even over the private sector. Um, Airbnb, I've been watching how Airbnb, the landscape has been really changing. I think some of those arguments that Airbnb isn't affecting the rental market have uh, been totally shot to hell right now in terms of uh, what Airbnb is really doing to rental markets and how we need to make sure that those policies on the public sector side are really dealing with the impact of that corporation, corporations like them in urban environments. And even making sure that as we're looking at something like rent forgiveness, well, where's the money going to come from if we call from rent forgiveness? If it doesn't come from the feds, and if it doesn't come from state of Oregon, where's it going to be coming from? Well, we probably should have thought about that before this crisis. And so we need a rental subsidy reserve fund on hand. And I actually think it should come from things like uh, increased taxation on short-term rentals that are affecting our housing market. That may need to change um, as this landscape changes. It's hard to say. 
But I think keeping our city in compliance with the Fair Housing Act is going to be really important in the future. You can find more about me on that at my website at sarah2020.com slash housing if you want to read my housing policy in full. Uh, the good government policy, there's a lot in there that I think is important when it comes to recovering from COVID. But most importantly, let's not take democracy for granted. As we're seeing right now with the U.S. Postal Service, uh, the call for vote by mail, the potential defunding of USPS, and at a time when we probably need to vote by mail more than ever, I predict that the trend toward autocracy right? The trend toward authoritarian nationalism may be the status quo at this point and that we need to fight to resist in 2020 more than we even needed to fight in 2016 in terms of we need to get big money and special interests out of politics and focus on community-based politics. So we need to keep pushing hard for strong local government undergirded by a healthy, vibrant, absolutely robust local democracy. I cannot stress this enough. At no time uh, since I have lived in Portland do I think that our restoring trust in government is more important than I do right now. It may seem counterintuitive. For me, it seems common sense. I would love to get your feedback on why we need a strong Um, healthy local democracy and local government to tackle some of these problems. But I think that we need to make sure that we are shifting power from city government um, and using the power of city government not to uh, execute top-down solutions, but really using the power of government to undergird um, frontline communities is going to be important. We need to get communities who've been left out of decision-making processes, shaping budgets, shaping priorities, shaping values. This is going to happen through participatory budgeting. Uh, Something that I added to this that I've been thinking about since my trip to the UK last year, but I didn't really put on paper, been noodling through it, but I think it's more important to put it in writing now, is supporting local news media. Uh, When I was in Scotland last year, I was surprised to learn that their government actually takes out advertising in the Sunday paper, I think it's every other week, to publish things like public health updates, uh, policy updates. And that serves two reasons. One, educating the public, but two, making sure that local media is healthy. We have seen in this crisis the importance of on-the-ground reporting, local media, whether that's radio, whether that's print, whether that's digital, how important they have been in keeping us up to date, and they have been here when we needed them most. And so I think that for local government to find creative ways of supporting local media through an established framework of ongoing citywide procurement to making sure that we're supporting with our public dollars, right? Not so that we can get editorial free pass, but making sure that those organizations are there um, when we need them. And I'm thankful to Senator Ron Wyden because he highlighted that. He called for federal support of local journalism in COVID-related packages. He said, and I'm going to quote him on this because it's a good one, local news play an indispensable role in American civil civic life as a trusted source for critical information, a watchdog for government, corporate accountability, and a building block of social cohesion. If social cohesion is our first responder, well, Ron's on to something because uh, 
we need media to help us bring that all together. So I added that one in this policy proposal. And obviously thinking about things like getting big money out of Portland politics. Would we have rent amnesty right now if Wheeler weren't taking $10,000 checks from the anti-tenant lobby? Well, it's hard to say. I'm I'm not going to go so far, but I'll let you draw the lines between the dots on that one. Thinking about the weak mayor commission form of government and how much better off we would be if we had a more coordinated government is probably pretty good. Uh, Imagine if we had a more robust civic engagement model. It's been really hard getting accurate information. I don't know that we've even sent a text from the city uh, to everyone in Portland. Wouldn't it be nice if you got your daily update on your phone from the city about what's going on and things like that, as opposed to these uh, patchwork quilt of emails, half of them saying one thing and half of them saying the other. And so that's the way we thought of this. I hope that you'll take a look at it. Some of it's new, some of it has been pulled from existing policies, but I think both are important because as we move forward in this, we need to have the courage to learn together, to adapt together, and to transform policies as we go. Um, It's going to be increasingly challenging in the future for us to understand what to do. Uh, what kind of leadership do we need in chaotic times? Um, we have to ask ourselves, what are the limits of our understanding? How can we come together to bridge the divides? And how can we as a community better predict a future um, that more reflects the lived experience for everyday Portlanders? So I hope that in some ways, I know this isn't as many answers as we need. I know that this isn't even the beginning of the beginning, Uh, but I want you to stay inspired. I want you to focus on the new priorities as we have to head fearlessly into the future. I want us to begin focusing on pushing the government that is in place right now toward even incremental successes. We may not get transformative policy out of the Wheeler administration, so be it. But let's continue to stay together and push for those. Even the small wins are going to be important at this time. I'm not a Pollyanna. I understand that things suck right now. It's volatile. It's uncertain. Reality is a moving target. I hope that we can come together to stay connected, um, to continue to learn, to continue to mature, and to deepen our engagement with each other. Because I truly believe social cohesion will be our first responder in the future. A connected, healthy community is going to be our greatest investment, and we do have everything we need to make radical progress on our most pressing challenges today. So thanks for going through this podcast with me. Um, I appreciate you tolerating the low production quality. I take full responsibility for that. None of that is on my team. And I wish all of you serenity, health, um, that you have your basic needs met. If you come up short at all, or you're looking for help or need ways to get involved, don't hesitate to reach out. You can go to info at sarah2020.com and shoot us a note. Um, you can request some good neighbor cards there. You can go to the website and find ways to volunteer. And please, 
by all means, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Our Portland. If you have a question for Sarah, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to ourportland at sarah2020.com or use the Our Portland hashtag and send us a message on social media. Find out more at sarah2020.com. This has been a production of Friends of Sarah for Portland.